You are listening to the Composing Trust podcast by Culture Solutions, a series on European cultural action with the world. Is Europe still attractive? How is it perceived outside the EU? How do Europeans promote culture together in the world and with which partners? What have they learned together? What is their experience? Our Composing Trust podcast series will address these issues. Welcome to you all. My name is Damien Helly, the co-author of this Composing Trust series by Culture Solutions. Planting trees is often described as one of the most valuable climate actions. Trees and their diversity are very useful to capture carbon, they create humidity against drought, diverse forests burn less easily, and trees prevent soil erosion. Agroforestry is about mixing trees and agriculture. It has been practiced for thousands of years. In industrialized and urbanized societies, However, we have almost forgotten about it, despite its many advantages for productivity, biodiversity and climate action. In this mini-series on agroforestry, we try to clarify what is inside the climate and culture nexus. We will hear the voices of people who are passionate about trees, combined with all forms of agriculture. People who work every day on cultural solutions to make behaviour change happen. Some are artists, others are lobbyists in Brussels, agroforestry practitioners and leaders. This episode is designed as a personal research journey through which I gathered audio material collected from interviews I ran with agroforestry specialists and from podcasts and videos available online. All references and credits are available on the webpage of this episode. In this first part on agroforestry and culture, we will see why those who practice agroforestry are actually involved in cultural action and why agroforestry is part and parcel of international cultural relations. In our second episode, we will explore the connections between arts and science in agroforestry and agroecology. Today, we will start with the voice of Katie Adams from the US, who works with American farmers on agroforestry practices she explains, in a regenerative agroforestry podcast episode, why worldviews on time have an impact on the ways farmers see agroforestry in industrialized countries. People thinking of what should a farm look like or how should a farm function is a little bit at the heart of that um, because so many, as you said, so many of those kind of hard points are... Um, are cultural and they're not economic or ecological because we have good data, right? Like we have the numbers to show that um, trees are sinking carbon, they're you know purifying water, they they increasingly can um, create more production and, and more profits per acre than say uh, grain monocrops. But it doesn't look right to folks, and the timescale is completely different. 
Uh, we're so used to an annual cropping cycle or even, you know, even a two or three year cropping cycle or rotations. And when we bring trees into it, we're suddenly making a long-term investment. <laughs> I mean, these are things that are going to be on the landscape for a long time. And folks, especially here in the United States, I think we have a pretty short memory and, and a pretty short history. So we think of things in one generation instead of in multiple generations. And trees force us to confront that we're not going to be able to control something or a farm or a landscape or a system for one lifetime. Trees kind of force us to look beyond one singular lifetime and, and look more to the future. Katie's comments were followed by the recording of cropping and tree mulching sounds suspended in time from the documentary film A l'ombre des champs under the field shade by Olivier Boriès. I wanted to compare the American way of conceiving investments in trees with historically rooted traditions of agroforestry, and I found that the presentation by the founder of Aforest in India, Shubendu Sharma, expressed very well the variety of cultural approaches to the value of trees in agriculture. This painting that you see on your left is around 300 years old and you can see the kind of diversity of the trees. You have a king, you have a saint and a musician in the same picture and they are having a meeting inside the forest. Whereas today in 2020, if we look at the world around us, most of the time we are surrounded by the electricity, neon lights, the concrete city around us. And this was not, this has not been our natural habitat for almost the entire human evolution. This was an extract from one of Shobendu's online presentations on his work to regenerate forests in hostile environments. The reference to this presentation is available on the webpage of this episode. I asked Zayan Khan, an artist and agroecologist based in South Africa, about how she saw the connection between agroecology, culture and the arts and why it is central in her life. The reason why I'm doing the work that I'm doing is because I'm very much influenced by where I live, where I'm from, um, which goes back many, many generations in our ancestry. And I live in Cape Town in South Africa, which is a a very small, long peninsula that reaches out at the very kind of south of, of the African continent um, and is surrounded by ocean. And the peninsula kind of climaxes in a mountain range. And so um, it is it is hyper diverse. You know, we have such high rates of endemism here where, you know, there are species that exist that exist nowhere else in the world. I'm, I'm very much influenced by this and by the broader country and how, you know, in its diversity of, of land, of people, even of different, you know, 
kinds of salts that we get in the land. And I, it, mm. it, it's a huge draw for my creativity and for, for inspiration. Um, and I yeah. have been, you know, almost obsessing trying to figure that out within the urban setting because we know a lot of agroecology focuses on the rural. And so I've taken it kind of upon myself to see what that is within the urban setting. Um, and, you know, there's, there's so much success in that. More than just being inspired by the diversity of nature, Zion also points at the recognition of our connection with species with which we share the same space. There's a, there's a level of where our culture kind of melds and connects with so many other, in my belief, in my experience, so many other species culture, so many other species cultures. Um, you know, that's one of the basis of the way that I live and what I teach my children. For example, we navigate going to the beach and swimming in the ocean with the fact that sharks are also swimming in the ocean. And it's part of our cultural acknowledgement here. You know, um, we are navigating different insects and um, the way that, that others are living with us in the same space. Um, to make that a, a tradition that we practice, you have to kind of lean into the cultural aspects of your life. It requires a very deep listening, a very attuned and innate wisdom, um, understanding to make it something yeah. that an audience can absorb and through through humility and through grace, I'm not trying to sell something or I'm not trying to force people to, to do it in a way that is storytelling. That requires the artistic practice, but it must be kind of hinged on discovery and uh, where intuition lives and um, imagination. And for me, that becomes something more scientific. That becomes the curiosity to seek as to why things are the way they are. Once I had realized how interconnected all the cultural and artistic dimensions of forestry were, I try to better understand what it really means to people in their daily lives, especially in communities for which trees had a strong symbolic significance. For this, I had to listen to those who are on the lands, to the working communities and the people. And here again, I discovered that there were many creative ways to share time, knowledge, and also have fun with farmers who grow trees. I had been advised to listen to Method Ginduza, who, following the philosophy of Earth jurisprudence, came back to South Africa a few years ago to Zimbabwe to revive, together with his community, the cultivation of millet, reactivating societal connections, ritual practices and intangible cultural heritage. By doing that, he also enriched biodiversity through agroforestry. Method took part in several webinars and roundtables online, including one with Goethe Institute in Johannesburg. I approached the elders in my own family, elders in neighboring communities, speaking to them very generally, sitting under the shade of different types of trees and even uh, enjoying our traditional beer. But each time I spoke to the elders, I felt this sense through them of how they, in some time in the past, were connected to their land, to the other beings on the land. 
But that elder after elder mourned and was in grief about that loss. And I thought there was work to be done. And in one of the sessions, we were talking more generally. And one elder says to me, this is how we see the connections of things. When we grow our crops, we know which one loves which one. For example, pearl millet loves jucobins. And I said, okay, I had heard about agroecology by that time. And I thought, is he meaning intercropping? But I mean, he did not say intercrop. He said, jucobins love pearl millet. Okay. He goes on to say, when we grow jucobins, it is a tree outside of the field, somewhere in the forest. It will tell us when the jucobins are ripe. Look at the mvumira tree when you see its leaves turning yellow. You know your jucobins are ready to be eaten. Where I meet the elders again and say, but it's not enough to hear what you tell me about. What else, what else can we do to get things going? One elder said, when we have to talk about our connection to nature, our belongingness to nature, we have to, take, to talk about our rituals. I said, okay, so meaning what? He says, I'm talking here about the rituals, for example, to ask for rain, rituals to bless the first fruits. And I'm getting even more interested. These are some rituals that have been done in the past 40 years and they haven't been done again. So the elders explain some of these things to me. And in the group, in the community gatherings, in the community dialogues, these things begin to emerge. So who used to do what? Where was what done? You know, and what did we need? We needed things like finger millet, which is a sacred crop to our land and to our people. Now, over the years, and with the work of reviving seeds, the finger millet was there. It had come back and the elders said, now it is the time for us to go up the mountains. The finger millet is here. The elderly women who brew the beer are here. The elderly men who go up the mountains with the elderly women are here. It is time that we should go up the mountains again and celebrate and speak to our ancestors a ritual in which all first fruits before, they, before anything is eaten are, are harvested and gathered in one place. Elders, men and women who are spiritual leaders take this, they take it to the sacred sites, they do an offering. They come back in singing and dancing, singing 
in vulgar language. Dancing in, in the most of vulgar ways you can imagine. Then they come back. Everybody joins in the singing and the dancing. So we gathered all the fruits in singing and dancing, in ululation, and in real happiness. Gathered all the fresh farm produce under the mukamba tree, the African mahogany tree. To us, that's, that tree is sacred too, because all rituals, all family discussions, all tribal discussions happen under that tree. And in this ritual, we offer what we have harvested to the land. In other words, we offer this to the ancestors because the ancestors and the land are one. The ancestors live on the land and the land is our ancestor, the great ancestor. The elder said, these don't become just plants when they come and we gather them here. They become part of our community because they link us. We who are alive to those who have gone, those who are our soil, our ancestors. One cannot take this without humility. As we say, the planet Earth is a huge planet. If one doesn't get the privilege of going into space to see it orbiting around the sun, you can never feel it as one single unit. But when we spend time in nature, we have the privilege of experiencing our planet, the wholeness of it. We also experience how small we are in the vastness of the cosmic system. And this can only make us even more humble, belonging to a huge world in which we are but just sent. In Europe, we also have strong traditions of worshipping trees, not least in middle-age fairy tales, for instance. Yet we have kind of forgotten them. But their trend to revive agroforestry and revive interest in landscape as intangible heritage. Method's testimony at some point also made me think that what he describes here is not that alien to some of our music festivals in Europe. I looked up online if European agroforestry is interested in culture and the arts. For a few decades, some agroforestry engineers like the French agronomist Christian Duprat mixed their work with creative practices. And more recently, Olivier Boriès, a geographer, has developed cinematographic techniques to study agroforestry and the relations between farmers and landscapes. He produced films and used filmmaking as a research method on agroforestry, analyzing the relationship, including from an aesthetical viewpoint, between landscapes, 
trees, various forms of life, and the people who look after them. In this interview, extracted from Borges's film A l'ombre des champs, mentioned in the webpage of this episode, a farmer explains how agroforestry has magically transformed its plot into a beautiful landscape and the way he himself looks at it with joy and mindfulness. When I see these plots, mine and those of others, with these trees, with this vegetation, with these colors, greens, with these flowers, with these pollinators, when I hear these sounds, it creates a movement. And then the landscape changes, your view of it changes too, to such a point when time no longer exists. After a while, a magic happens, an alchemy between these trees and this soil, and the vegetation that will grow around them. So as it changes the landscape, it changes your view and your conception of uniformity. Soon it's going to be even more beautiful, all flowers and foliage. It's an image you never tire of seeing. We will conclude this episode with the voice again of Method Kunditsa, who connects the dots of what we have heard today. The role of trees and the benefits of their interactions with other forms of living, the cultural dimensions of agroforestry, both as worldviews and as cultural expressions. It is our firm belief that when that relationship between we as humans and the rest of other living elements on the living planet is established, it is that which forms the basis of what we can define as happiness. Perhaps we have to redefine what we mean by happiness. And happiness can be a universal concept. It's a concept that's specific to a community. What defines happiness in this place cannot be the same in that place. And it is exactly how Mother Earth works. It is the diversity of people's views and people's ways of lives, cultures. Yeah. Our ways of life are impacted by climate change and biodiversity loss. We may disagree on what happiness consists of, and what a correct behavior is, but we're all affected by climate-induced transformations. There are also very diverse ways of practicing agroforestry, but wherever it takes place, it reflects the cultural features of human communities in relation and coexistence with other livings. I hope you enjoyed this episode. In the next one, we're diving more deeply into agroforestry as both an art and a science, with interviews of biologists, artists and agroforestry experts. They explain why agroforestry matters to EU policies and international partnerships on culture, forests and climate change. for listening to today's episode of our Composing Trust podcast by Culture Solutions. If you liked it, you can subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast platforms and contact us at culturesolutions.eu.